Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McInroy. My cellmate, Steve Walsh. Hello. Top bunk over here. This week we're talking about prisons south of the river. Prisons and prisoners. Because we've got a few... Um... He used to give me roses. Now that's in Australia. <laughs> Southern Hemisphere Hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get going, we didn't have a show last week. Because I'm suffering from the Curveins uh, syndrome, also known as uh, washerwoman's thumb. Thumb. Yeah, because it's kind of a thumb okay. slash wrist yeah. tendonitis type thing. So we're I'm, not pinning on vigorous hand washing, are we? Extensive typing. Yeah, that's this that's, is that's the, the main problem. Fifteen yeah. years on a computer, solid. We did launch the South London Hardcore map last week, though. We did. Like um, some people would say, we've put South London on the map. Right, but now we've definitely put stuff on the hardcore on a Google map. <laughs> Some might say we've literally put this show on a map. And that's all true, isn't it? So If you go to southlondonhardcore.com and click map at the top, it'll take you to the Google map. You can look at it on your iPad, iPod. Personal computer. Fablet. Do you know about phablets? Fabulous tablet. <laughs> Phone tablets. Uh, P-H-A-B-L-E-T. They're reasonably expecting people to start using this as a word. We're not going to. Yeah, but I don't think people would use the word blog or podcast, to be honest. Yeah, this is true. Check out our blog and podcast. (laughs) On your phablet. (laughs) Welcome to 2013. The map is essentially a list of episodes and links from the show, but just arranged geographically to correspond with the places we've talked about and the people we've talked about. So with particular places that we've talked about, and particularly with Google Maps, obviously a street view... Uh, you could go to where we've talked about blue plaques, go down, scroll around and see the blue plaque. So, you know, we had an email recently from a guy in Chicago who was talking about listening to the show without really knowing about South London. And the idea, or part of the idea with the map is, it means you can listen to the show. And if you've never been to these places, even if you live in London and, you know, you don't necessarily want to jump on a bus and, and go to these places. You no, can... don't go to any of these places. <laughs> go, to, go to some of these places. But... Um, you can you can visit alongside us. Yeah, so for example, if you clicked on Brixton, you know, pick an easy one, you'd be able to see Brixton Prison, and there'd be a link to this week's show. Uh, Brixton Market, maybe to the music episode, Scandal, a scandal in yeah. the Brixton Market. You can see Morley's, see if they've got a display of toys in the window, despite never stocking them. <laughs> so give it, a, give it a, a look-see. And if people say, went a bit wild, Steve... You know, they just scrolled all the way to, say, Spanish Town in Jamaica. Would they have a link there to find our uh, episode to, to Twin Cities? I didn't think of that, but that would be legitimate, wouldn't it? Well, you've got a couple of days, so... <laughs> Get on it. Check out the map. Maybe I've uh, done a link to Spanish Town in Jamaica. Do check. <laughs> Let me know. Because <laughs> I can't use my right hand <laughs> for the foreseeable future. That's on southlondonhardcore.com. We're on Twitter at SLHC. You can email us at southlandhardcore at gmail.com. Visiting hours, though, Steve, are... Uh... No, no, actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to tighten the... Uh... Trying to tighten. If you want to email us a cake with a file in it, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> and why would you? You could email us a file with a cake in it. So, oh. Oh! Looking at the history of prisons for the show, it made me think about... Not only, you know, obviously this show is essentially about where prisons are in South London, but you sort of see a pattern of, of why prisons are in South London, and then also what prisons are used for historically. Um, we've talked before about the history of South London being born from chaos and disorder. You had the city on the north side of the river, the borough of Southwark on the south bank of the river, where you didn't have as heavy a police presence, or indeed very little police presence, any sort of law or order. It was a, a lawless place with unlicensed theatres, bear brothels. Yeah, exactly. Just, uh, you know, loads of baiting. <laughs> We've done that game before. Pretty much every episode. Bear, bear, baiting. <laughs> and it seems almost as a response to that, where the disorder was on the south bank of the river, the prisons were put on the south bank of the river. You can understand the reasoning. You wouldn't, you know, it's a sort of, in the same way as... as hospitals and asylums which are actually put on the other side of the river and heavy industry you put things away from the people in power that they don't want to look at they don't want to confront they don't want to 
see or smell or hear. So it, it's all shunted to the south bank of the river. In 1796, Southwark had five prisons. The single borough of Southwark, which was, you know, smaller than it is now, had five prisons. There were 18 in the whole of London. So over 25% of London's prisons were essentially on Borough High Street, <laughs> or just on Newton <laughs> Causeway, yeah. just, you know, uh, that, a very small strip of land from the Thames down to the Elephant and Castle. It's also, I say, interesting to look at what the prisons were used for. Initially, it was disorder. It was a case of trying to control the public who were intoxicated or in, engaged in criminal activities, and the prisons were designed to take these people off the streets and you know, bring order to the streets. Later on, they seem to be used mainly to attack dissent. They become politicised and it becomes conflated with the religious conflicts that were taking place in the country between uh, Protestants and Catholics. And there's a lot of prominent Catholic, what would be seen as heretics at the time, that are imprisoned in uh, the places across South London. And then later on, debt seems to be the sort of the main target for the prisons. They, they're places where if you can't pay your debts, you're put in there. And the arrangements seem to be bizarre, like nothing we'd recognise as prison nowadays. There were yeah, uh, procedures put in place where you could go to debt as prison, but get essentially day release, so you could mm. go out and earn money to pay back your debts, which makes sense in a way, but just yeah. um, a very sort of, you know, as I say, we'll, we'll come across... Procedures in prison that we wouldn't recognise at all. No, today. utterly bizarre yeah, and yeah. completely unjust. In the previous episode, we put up some blue plaques, and one of them was for Mary Wade, who was sentenced to death for stealing. In uh, stealing a dress and a bonnet. Yeah, in the, at, at in, the age of eleven in the eighteenth century, and similar kind of injustices throughout the show, Stephen. There, I mean, it's bleak, isn't it? I mean, it is. But I mean, I say it verges from from bleak to bizarre, where you've got mm. these horrific episodes, moments, but also these bizarre things that happened that, as I say, we just wouldn't recognise nowadays. But yeah, you, the themes that you'll see, and we won't necessarily refer to them directly across the show, is that you see the prisons becoming or transforming from a tool for the king and the crown to bring order to the streets for the church to imprison those that oppose it, and eventually for finance to step in and demand that people pay what they owe. So it's almost like you see the transition of various forms of human power exemplified through the use of prisons. The blue plaque on the side of the clink refers to it as the most notorious medieval prison. I mean, obviously now it's the most notoriously bad London museum. (laughs) No, I've never been in there. No, for the for the show we do. If we're doing something like this, if there's a chance to go somewhere and and tie in a little bit, like we've done the science museum for Babbage and whatnot, we'll try and and, and go to a place to talk about it in a bit more detail with the clink. I mean, I don't even know how much it costs, but if it, if they're charging at all, then yeah. I've got no interest in it. It's no, similar it's, to the London Dungeon, it's for isn't children, it? isn't it? Yeah. And you know, you without going there, you know exactly what you're going to see. It's going to be <laughs> well, just uh, it's going to be mouldy cobbles, isn't it? It's going to stink. And they're going, this is what it's like. It horrible. <laughs> Who sort of goes uh, got a day off? Take it be nice. Let's see a place that's rigorously reenacting the conditions of a medieval prison. <laughs> okay, or but you can walk past, can't you? Down that little absolutely, cob- cobbled definitely street. walk. Yeah, have a look. It's a or, nice walk. You know, uh, by all means, go to our handy map. And you can see the spot without having Don't to. Don't have to leave your house. <laughs> Develop tendonitis while you're at it. With the clink, you can see the emergence of a form of order in South London and how it originated. The Bishop of Winchester is given what's known as the liberty of the Borough of Southwark. He's given control over law and order, licensing, just basically controlling the various elements in there. So you've got... Uh, Bishop-sponsored brothels, theatres, bear-baiting pits. All the same things are happening, but just a little more control over it. And as a consequence of that, you get courts introduced and attached to the courts, prisons. So the clink was opened on behalf of the Bishop of Winchester as part of his method of controlling activities in Southwark. 
it's run for profit. So straight away, we get to see some of the bizarre things that we alluded to at the start of the show. Maybe the most bizarre thing is that rooms were hired out. Room hire and the various sort of things you could buy that made it seem more like a hotel. Uh, you could like, would you like candles? That'll be an extra... Bedding the, and stuff. Yeah. The, the one that intrigued me the most were lighter irons. You could pay yeah. a specific fee to have lighter leg irons. So the idea, and it's just, again, it's the administration of this that really intrigues me. from a Mel Brooks film. Exactly, yeah. Just the idea of someone, basically a bookkeeper sat down and gone, here's an idea. <laughs> right, what we do, we get various weights of leg irons, they pay a corresponding amount, they're the leg irons they get. Brilliant. Also had a brothel in there, because it seems like there wasn't a public building in Suffolk at the time that didn't have some sort of connection to prostitution. Another element we'll see in history of prisons in South London, something that's uh, endemic to the history of prisons across the world, is that at times of public disorder, they become lightning rods for the protesters. So in 1450, rioters attack the clink. The staff that are working there are seen as essentially tax collectors and are all killed. Yeah, fair enough. The clink itself is rebuilt and extended. They use it as an opportunity to uh, make a, a bigger and better clink. Clink has come to mean prison generally, has it? Yeah, the name itself supposedly came from the clink of the leg irons. But yeah, as you say, the, it became a, a, a slang term for that place in particular that's now, again, globally recognised as a name for prison, isn't it? One of many wonderful legacies that's have London. <laughs> Another prominent prison from the time was the Borough Compter, which operated on a very different scale to the clink. The clink was run for profit, and as we say, when it was demolished, was rebuilt and extended, it was all about an economy of scale. The more prisons they could get in, the more they were going to make. The Borough Compter was attached to the court in Southwark directly. So it was almost more like a holding cell or a lock-up for prisoners. You know, in modern terms, we see it as a remand spot before they were moved on to other prisons. The location itself moved around. It was on sort of Southwark High Street, Borough High Street, and then moved to Tooley Street, which I'd imagine is where the inspiration for putting the London Dungeon there later on. Yeah, that mate. I mean, if you're going to put the London Dungeon somewhere, put it in the... Southwark area, isn't it? <laughs> well, they've now moved it, obviously, to County Hall. They've moved it to County Hall, but even when, from what I've uh, read now and understand, I was assumed that was, similarly to where the clink is a museum in the space where the prison was, I was assumed the London Dungeon was a museum in the space where the prison was. But um, the Borough Contra itself, when it was on Tooley Street, was on the other side of the road. It was where uh, Hayes Gallery Yeah, was. Hayes Gallery, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, different form of prison. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, in, in terms of prisons generally, I discovered uh, an incredible thing, and this is a more general point about prisons, so I'll make it brief, but going to Ireland a couple of years ago, I went to Kilmainham Jail in Dublin, which is where... Visiting a relative. It's, uh, it's a museum now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they might work there. <laughs> um, and it was the, the prison where the leaders of the Easter Rising in 1916 were taken and held and eventually executed. Um, it's a, a brilliant place and well worth a visit. But the uh, incredible piece of information there where they revealed that the traditional sort of 19th century, 18th, 19th century design for prisons was the Panopticon, which was designed by Jeremy Bentham. And the idea was that you had a central space that the guards could base themselves in and the cells would be dotted around the edges so that they could keep an eye on everyone and control everyone's movements. And obviously with the advent of closed-circuit television now and technology and whatnot, you don't need to do that. You, you don't need to have someone sitting in a central space and everyone, everything being arrayed around it. But the design for those prisons has lived on into modern shopping centres. <laughs> which have and if you imagine it yeah. you know the sort of the empty space in the middle like Elephant and, Castle yeah well uh, any uh, sort of yeah modern shop is there with the, the space in the middle and then the shops arrayed around the side on, on walkways and platforms down the road on Newington Causeway was the Surrey County Jail later known as the New Jail best known as Horsemonger Lane Jail 
Built at the end of the 18th century. Again, attached to the court, so more... Initially more as a whole until, but again it grows, doesn't it? It um, gets expanded upon and uh, becomes quite an important jail, isn't it, in terms of holding a lot of people. Significant because Charles Dickens witnessed hangings there, executions, which... He weren't happy, was he? No, no. He begins to protest against them. And it, it's interesting to sort of see the influence that visiting prisons and the experience of prisons, specifically South London prisons, has on Dickens and his work. It does come to inform his sensibilities and directly uh, appear in some of his work as well. Yeah, Dickens wrote about this and the next couple of prisons, didn't he? Just extensively. Well, it's, you know, particularly with uh, the Marshall, which we'll come on to, it's such a formative experience in his life. But, you know, these he, Dickens, by nature, was a liberal man who wrote extensively about social justice, you know, specifically in terms of child labour and various other things to do with um, the criminal justice system. But also, you know, these... And you can imagine, can't you, if you are not a crusader, but someone fascinated by social justice and movements. Yeah, or com- just a compassionate human Yeah, being. just a normal human. And you see yeah. a hanging and you it's go, just so wrong. barbaric, yeah. the whole practice, man. I mean, there's probably more details I came across for the Marshalls here, which we'll come to. But just so barbaric. Probably the most famous execution there would have been uh, Edward Despard, wouldn't it? Yeah. Or was it Despard? Yeah. He planned to uh, execute George III, didn't he? Yeah. Which I say fair enough. I mean, any monarch... They are, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, what they were kind of just sort of banging their hammer to. Yeah. I presume that's a phrase. Well, it was, was of course, under George III that Mary Ward was uh, condemned to death. Yeah, so he he planned to kill him. They got busted. And he was executed on the roof of Horsemonger Lane Jail to more than 20,000 spectators on Newington Causeway. Yeah. People say nothing goes on at Elephant Castle, Steve. <laughs> There's a couple of other famous inmates in various times. I can't remember if we talked about Arthur Tooth. <laughs> did we? I think, we? I think you'd remember if we did. No, is it I think I had him in my notes before. About Danny Brown. Arthur Tooth was a vicar. And it's... Uh, Lovely, because there's uh, almost a, a double South London reference to it. Um, a vicar who uh, spent time in Horsemonger Lane Jail. But he was the, the vicar for the parish of St James in Hatcham. Which, of course... Oh, right, New Cross. Yeah. New Cross. I think we may have mentioned him in New Cross. Is this the guy who contributed to the dictionary and cut his own Johnson off? No, we're getting to him. Did you get it, Johnson? <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, yeah, Arthur Zouf was the vicar at St James Hatcham. And was prosecuted for using what was described as ritualistic liturgical practices, which, in layman's terms, means he's essentially a Protestant church ringer vicar who's using incense, very elaborate, seen as almost gaudy uh, services. Oh, right, not quite witchcraft, though. No, nothing like it. It was essentially uh, just veering towards Catholicism. And I'd say there's a lot of examples of dissenters and what was seen as heretics at the time being imprisoned but what fascinating about this particular case wasn't he wasn't a rabble rouser he wasn't a man who was writing tracts he just pamphlets. wanted the church to smell nice yeah exactly he, and he uh, was horrified by the response he wasn't he wasn't a firebrand he wasn't like a Martin Luther hammering uh, you know demands to doors he all he wanted to do was have a nice service um but they wouldn't allow it. I just they... want to put some fancy clothes on. <laughs> yeah. I just want a bit of purple to set this off. Mm. It'll look lovely. Um, and, yeah, I just found it remarkable that a man could be in prison for essentially wanting to do the nicest service possible in his church. But these are the times we were talking about. He was he was seen as a threat to the establishment. And as, as we, similar to Despard's, but on a, on a different scale. So you remove these people from society. You lock yeah. them up. The dictionary contributing inmate that you referred to earlier was William Chester Minor. Yeah, it's a bit of a, a sad case. He's is, essentially yeah, suffers. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 a man with, with issues with mental health. And obviously at the time and arguably even now we're still not entirely sure 
what to do with people, how to treat them, and how to yeah, well, we particularly tr- if they're treating better than this. I mean, absolutely, this one is that they care in the community, wasn't it? No, no. Um, yeah, he he has issues with mental throughout his life and ends up murdering. Uh, he was staying in Lambeth. He was an American, but living in Lambeth, who murders a man just on his way to work for no real, yeah. no motive, he no was reason. Like fully nuts, wasn't he? Yeah, he stays in Horsemonger Lane Jail briefly, and then is sent out to Broadmoor. Uh, lunatic Asylum in Crowform, uh, which obviously I didn't realise it was as old as that board. Yeah, no, me neither. One sort of name. I, I, I would imagine it's a different uh, building now, but um, yeah. yeah, I didn't imagine it would be going back long as well. Famously, while at Broadmoor, he's got, and this is where we get into the sort of fluid nature of prison stays for different people. Um, he's got a reasonable income from an army pension. So he's allowed to buy books and read books. And through his exchanges with booksellers in London that are supplying books to him, he finds out that the Oxford English Dictionary, which is being put together for the first time at this point, is looking for contributors. So he goes through his vast collection of books and uh, pulls out examples for them to use to see the words in their correct form. Is there anything notable that he, he not coined but I don't have any in particular, but there's a wonderful book about him and the entire, his, you know, unfortunate history of, of him. But but the the, the almost the sort of disparity bet- from the horror of his dementia and murder to him living this very quiet life as essentially an academic. Um, it's in the uh, Surgeon of Proform by Simon Winchester. Which is a fantastic book. I remember it uh, being on the shelf. At, at Wars yeah, Wars. it would have been face out with a recommends card from me because uh, I thought it was brilliant. Loved it. If you're looking for Horsemonger Lane now to see where the jail stands, you won't find it because Horsemonger Lane had its name changed to Union Street. But if you look for Union Street, you won't find it because Union Street had its name changed to Harper Road, which you will find. It is there. And the prison itself, the land on which it stands, is now. Newington Gardens, so it's become a park, which is better. Nice, yeah, much better, isn't it? King's Bench Prison opened in the 13th century, survived until 1880, stood between Borough High Street and Newington Causeway, had another peculiarity to it where there was a condition to people staying there called the liberty of the rules, whereby if you paid enough and weren't seen as dangerous to the public... You could serve your time while living within three miles of the prison. Yeah, why bother going back? <laughs> but what, what's the routine then? What do you do? Just like check in every so often and go, um, yeah, I'm still here, just three miles up the road. It's not prison then, is it? You know, obviously, House you're restricted. Well, I, I imagine it's why a bit... Why are people of... going more than three miles in those days? But, but, but the thing is, I guess if you lived four miles away, it's annoying. Because you've got to move like two roads along. <laughs> but just very odd, isn't it? Shows up in a few Dickens books, David Copperfield, Nicholas Nickleby, Little Dorrit, and in Melville's uh, Billy Byrne, Do You Think You Should... Oh, you know it, a bit of Morris's heart. <laughs> Your heart leapt when you saw that. <laughs> <laughs> did, yeah. Mark Isambard Brunel, the engineer, slightly less famous than his son. Yeah, a lot of the notable prisoners that stayed there, the majority it seems to be very much debtors' prison, isn't it? Mm. Just so bizarre that you were just, you were in debt, so they put you in prison. Yeah. Like, there was, I read somewhere about people that when they sort of, when it all changed, some kind of act came in. Will you talk about that later? But basically, they kind of, some of the Bankruptcy Act, maybe. Right. When they decided to stop putting people in prison for being in debt. (laughs) There are people that have been there for 30 years in prison. Yeah. Just well, children, scene, that, children are born into it. Yeah, people Don't know are born in, It's yeah. just extraordinary. Moses Pitt was another one, do you know? Yeah, had a look. Another debtor, isn't he? Yeah, he um, decided to put this atlas out in conjunction with the Royal Society in 12 volumes, yeah. It wasn't like the first ever atlas, but given that it's the 17th century, you know, there weren't many, I imagine. But also the fact that the Royal Society is involved gives mm. it a prominence that other, you know... So it was meant to be um, cost a grand a volume. I don't know if they use the word grand in those days to mean a thousand pounds. But he went bankrupt basically. Only four volumes came out, and they whacked him in a debtor's prison. 
right? <laughs> he put he put out a book called "The Cry of the Oppressed," being a true and tragical account of the unparalleled sufferings of multitudes of poor, imprisoned debtors in most of the jails in England. Good title. Catchy. That's no wonder his, his atlas went over budget. <laughs> I mean, it's we a need good, more words on the cover. It's a good title. You can't get on side of a bus. And similarly, William Smith, do you know, prominent geologist from Oxfordshire. Most of these people are not from South London. Credited with creating the first nationwide geological map. Uh, a lot of his work was kind of the foundation for some of Charles Darwin's stuff. And his work was plagiarised, essentially. He was financially ruined and then sent to the debtor's prison. Yeah, that's a big part of it, isn't it? The fact that you could lose a huge amount of money through no fault of your own and end up in prison. Mary Robinson, uh, poet, husband uh, in debt, she's yeah. sent to debtor's prison. Yeah. One of the most notorious inmates of the King's Bench Prison was Edmund Cole, who didn't serve time for debt, but seemed to do pretty much everything else you could get arrested for, short of uh, what we see as actual crimes nowadays. He was a man who, rather than spend time in prison for how he lost money, spent time in prison for how he made money, which was basically a number of corrupt practices. He was a bookseller and publisher. So, immediately, I feel an affinity with him. (laughs) Uh, You, partly as well, you've served your time in the stacks, haven't it? Yeah, a huckster, an opportunist, who would basically... And it's quite interesting sort of seeing so many of the practices that he was attacked for and sent to prison for, quite common now, in terms of uh, wider culture. Um, So, basically, if someone did a book, he'd do uh, a cheap cash-in version, a guide to it, some sort of parody of it, yeah. some sort of response to it. And you're like, that was most of the humour section. <laughs> and you know, if anyone needs to spend time in prison for what they've done in terms of... Barry Trotter, that whole series. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's uh, the Da Vinci Toad. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it's more you're going somewhere. It's about this Toad. Oh, okay, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of talking to you. Similarly, uh, a pirate thought nothing of appropriating and would occasionally declare his intentions to publish work whose rights were definitely held by other people would would sort of in print sort of go I'm going to publish this and you know there was a, occasions where he'd do this the author or the rights holders would write, a, write into a newspaper and go you've announced this from this guy it's definitely illegal and he just loved it he was like well this will sell more this is dead. And I think his plan was always to rack up enough money to basically pay his way out of it. And as we've seen, you know, this is it's a workable solution. Isn't it? Yeah, it's very much a capitalist model. Isn't it? Yeah, you just sort of go, right, well, I've racked up X amount of money here, liberty of the rules. If I do have to spend a the night there, I'm getting some bedding, I'll get some candles. What's the lightest irons you've got? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it, it, it works. Um, he'd also do hack biographies of people. And again, as we're saying this, you're just sort of yeah. going... I'm not this thinking is of still... Tom Oldfield, Gary Neville's story of a legend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, these, you know, we, for everything that, you know, is listed under accusations yeah. this way, you go, yeah, these are endemic parts Did of... Did he found uh... Waterstone? <laughs> <laughs> um, he also, I don't know if pioneered is the right word, but uh, specialised in a very specific por- uh, form of pornography, which was topological pornography essentially miniature versions of humans would travel across another human's body as if it was a geographical feature right can you imagine that I thought you were going to say cut it out of a hedge (laughs) (laughs) oh dear (laughs) Um, yeah he did a series of books called Maryland which are essentially about ladies Travel well, yeah, men. couple of uh, Twin Peaks, there you go, yeah. that sort of thing, yeah, just, just down to the forest. And then, uh... <laughs> what can we put a blue plaque up for him next? I time? think I don't know. He's he's a remarkable character. The great thing about him is he he, he wasn't a coward. When he went for people and went to rip off people, you know, I imagine it'd be quite easy. And there were probably dozens of other people doing similar shady things, but just doing it on a much smaller scale, mm. much less publicity. He went after, not went after, but openly plagiarised and ripped off Jonathan Swift, <laughs> professional satirist, a man who made, you know, well, uh, not only Swift, uh, Daniel Defoe, Alexander Pope. Essentially, if there's three writers that you don't go after, 
because they'll definitely get back at you. It's those three. Mm. Um, Swift was outraged because at the same time he was a satirist, he was also uh, a prominent and rising member in the church. So when uh, Cole helpfully put his name to various pamphlets, he had written, but written anonymously, it didn't do him any favours. Mm. Um, yeah, Daniel Defoe um, was quite openly scathing about Cole's practices and methods. But the best one was Alexander Pope, who it seems became obsessed with Carl and his output. Um, he wrote a book called The Dunciads, which was essentially a form of the Iliad, but listing the dunces that existed in the world. Right. And given all the targets, <laughs> all the figures, uh, in terms of royalty and power and uh, administrators, the book is dominated by Carl. <laughs> he <just laughs> essentially writes a book to go after this guy that's wound him up. And I was just sort of... Trying to think about Edmund Curl in a contemporary setting because thinking, oh, this is, you know, these are a lot of practices that would be involved. Who would be as. And it seems like he'd be like Piers Morgan. <laughs> He's just like a troll. He was just sort of going out there <laughs> and going, you know, uh, I'll have a, go, have a little nibble at him. Or he's yes. bitten. Brilliant. That'll uh, sell the next one. Yeah, remarkable uh, character. Couple of mathematicians, Steve. John Pell, who are more academic listeners will know from Pell's equation x squared minus n y squared equals 1 obviously. took the words right out of my mouth <laughs> and the other one like a name that is not no, not known like Robert Record uh, Welsh mathematician who invented the equal sign I mean that is extraordinary isn't it it's pretty good isn't it like that's universal man yeah he introduced the plus and minus signs to Britain Presumably getting them from, like, I don't know, Greek sources or whatever. I think a lot of that form of mathematics came from um, Islamic culture. Because, like, um, algebra, algorithms, all those things. Well, he introduced algebra to England. Okay, then it would be Islamic. Because all all those things, the al comes from um, the Islamic name. It says, educated at Oxford and Cambridge... Um, invents the equal sign in 50, 1557, is imprisoned and dies in the in King's Bench Prison in 1558, a year after inventing the equal sign. Probably had more to give, didn't he? If that was, you know, what he was doing. Sued by a political rival and then put in prison for debt. It's quite upsetting the way to end it, Steve, isn't it? <laughs> well, fortunately, we've got more. Possibly the most famous of the prisons in South London that have disappeared now is the Marshall scene. Immortalised by Dickens in Little Dorrit. But it was also the prison that he had the most direct experience with. His father was imprisoned in the Marshalsea for debt. A young Dickens is forced to go to work to support himself and his family. And also, you'd imagine, to help pay off his father's debt. And get a bit of pocket money, isn't it? As he yeah. wanted to uh, treat himself. Yeah, cola cubes. <laughs> I was thinking more Tamagotchi. How long ago was this? <laughs> it was post <laughs> post Colocus, pre Tamagotchi. I'm afraid that funny sort of Neverworld between those two things. The Marshall Sea was first built in 1329 and survived as an institution until 1879. There were two buildings in that time, both on Borough High Street. Um, they moved slightly along. Right on near the river, though, was it? Yeah, yeah, very close to... Um... The River Thames. Thames, that's it. <laughs> the first Marshalsea prison survives 500 years. The second one survives 38. But that was the more famous one. Yeah, that's there, the yeah. one that we've um, heard of. Because... Well, that's the one Dickens wrote about, Yeah, it? yeah. There's a wonderful quote from William Dixon in 1865 where he describes... The Marshalsea, and I think this sort of caps off the function of prisons in South London up to this point, where he describes the Marshalsea as full of poets, pirates, parsons, plotters, coiners, libellers, defaulters, and Jesuits, vagabonds of every class who vex the souls of men in power. And that's essentially the fate of these people. That's you know, um, obviously crimes were committed. You, you are talking about people who have committed violent acts and murder and various other mm. things. 
But essentially, what got you imprisoned at this point was you vexed the souls of men in power. Yeah. Don't matter if you've invented the equals sign. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever get over that, Steve. No. Because, you know, we, we've talked about uh, the great things that have come out of South London. But the fact that the uh, guy who invented the equal sign was sent here to die just undoes so, everything. It's it? a blot on our copybook, isn't it? Mm. So we skip forward a bit, Steve, but not entirely. Because these prisons, they do have histories, don't they? We're going to talk about the kind of major prisons that are open now. Yeah. Not yep. major, I mean, they're not minor prisons scattered about, are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the prisons we're going to talk about now opened at the earliest in the 19th century and went on to open, obviously, in the 20th and 21st century. So these are the modern prisons that are still in operation now. Yeah, the people in there, you know, I don't, I'm not making bold proclamations here, but generally deserve to be in there. Compared to, you know, people who were... Like, I think it was at the Marshall C. Steve where... You know what you're saying about people paying for lighter irons. Yeah. Basically people that couldn't afford, you know, that had no money. That were just chained to the floor, essentially. Yeah. Until they could pay back their debts. Stacked up. Not really the best way to sort of earn any money, is it? Being uh, stacked on a jail floor. Like, you know, there there were rooms where there was not enough room for the people crammed in there to lie down. And that's not really the case, is it? Well, I think, I think I think a big part of the sort of transition in terms of use of prisons back to uh, criminal justice in the 19th, 20th century is, as we talked about uh, at the opening, initially prisons are taking care of social order. So it's the king's enemies that are put in, it, then it's the church enemies that are put in, then it's finance enemies that are put in. But when we get to the 19th, 20th century, capitalism is so flawed and so based around the fact that everyone's essentially in debt that if you tried to introduce you know it basically anyone that had a credit card mm. would go to prison now who's yeah. out there spending uh, just the money they earn it's just ridiculous crazy people <laughs> when Lakeisha was at primary school my wife they were looking at a map of the local area she went to school in Brixton and there was where Brixton Prison was. There was just like a black square, you know, like you have in the A to Z. Yeah. And one of the kids whispered to another kid, uh, "That square's black because all the people in there are black." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brixton Prison seems to have got better as it went along. Uh, initially, one of the early features were tread wheels. Yeah. Where they had human people. pushing along these wheels to you know crush corn there's a windmill up the road (laughs) literally you know you don't need to definitely don't do this but again it's just an opportunity to uh, try and turn a profit out of people isn't it they had a nursery in there at one point Steve eventually again that was the thing it sort of uh, became uh, the preeminent place in London for female prisoners to go Initially, I think there was a phase where, was it four months of solitary confinement they had to endure as part of their initial process of going into prison? Then they were put into, what's the phrase they have? Uh, they come out of solitary confinement and you go into, there's a thing where you're not allowed to associate with other prisoners. You're allowed to sort of mingle among them, but you're not allowed to actually uh, speak. And then eventually you had to go into uh, just the general population. Remarkable. The footings of the treadmill are still sort of visible. Oh, really? Apparently, yeah. Oh, God. You can get rid of those, didn't you? Maybe it's just a warning. Like, do you well, want to no, it would be get back in your cell, Smith? Or, yeah. <laughs> it would be nice to think that they've kept it there as a reminder of the barbarity that we've um, emerged from. Well, you said that in 2000, on some kind of inspection. I mean, all of these prisons you read about, you know, they didn't meet standards no, uh, fairly so, recently. Yeah, yeah. Prison officers had sabotaged cell call buzzers so that they wouldn't uh, interrupt them when they were on the night shift. Right. So basically, you know, someone having like a seizure yeah, or whatever, yeah. just let go. Trying it. to trying to read a book here, <laughs> trying to nap. Did you watch Gordon Behind Bars? Gordon Ramsay's I didn't. program. No, no. Where he teaches uh, cellmates to cook. Like, have you, you seen it? No, but I've seen Oz. Yeah, and, <laughs> and that story where the guy's just like grinding up glass and putting yeah, it into people's yeah. food. Like, I'm sorry, man, but I'm not eating in a prison. No. No, I find it hard enough to eat in my school, man. My friend's, my friend's friend spent time in prison, and he said all he lived on 
for he was there for about six months and he just bought cream crackers mm. from the prison shop because they were sealed yeah that's it you don't touch any of the food in prison because mm. it's someone's definitely messed with it at some point so he just lived on cream crackers for six months he's probably getting scurvy innit you ever, been, for... you ever been to a prison no. oh, well, I shouldn't ask for it I should have asked off, this, off air innit you know? <laughs> yeah I went to see it's yeah. a hell of a time to uh... <laughs> no um, yeah Kilmainham Jail which was, of course, at that point closed. The museum is the only time I've been in a prison, I think. Yeah, I've only been to kind of a museum ones. Yeah. I'm guessing I must have been to a museum one. Bertram Russell, talking of mathematicians that spent time in the clink, not the clink. Hmm. Bertram Russell was kept in Brixton prison during the First World War. Uh, as far as I'm sad, he was charged with pacifism, which, if you're going to go to prison, that's the one to go for. He basically desertion is it? Well, oh no, desertion. You have to be in the army first. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it was pacifism. He he essentially. Oh, they literally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he he was basically saying to people, we shouldn't really be going to war. There's no need. Yeah. We should be trying to find a peaceful solution. Everyone's like, lock him up. He's a lunatic. Yeah, he thinks there's a teapot up in the sky. Interestingly enough, when it comes to the Second World War, Russell accepts the need for war. He doesn't glory in it and doesn't, you know, isn't pleased about it. But everyone looks to him to see what he says, and he's like, no, it's Hitler. There's no, you can't negotiate with this guy, you can't talk to him, we, we, we all have to go to war. But then he's, uh, you know, talking about the ways of, of doing it, essentially, trying to find the most practical way, rather than, uh, I imagine Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he probably didn't go down too well. Dresden. load of fascists. Yeah. Mostly Scottish, though. <laughs> so they're not South Londoners. I think we can kind of gloss yeah, over it. But Brendan Behan, do you know him? I do. Yeah. Have I pronounced the name right? Irish. Yeah, yeah. Brendan Behan. Yeah. yeah, wrote um, a book called Borstal Boy, which is all about his uh, experiences uh, in youth jail. The reason I mention him is because he was jailed for incidents in South London uh, on the site of the 1951 Festival of Britain. He orchestrated a go slow uh, protest, which nice. is my favourite kind of protest. <laughs> slow down, and in, he did a similar thing in the kind of nineteen fifty eight fifty nine at the Shell Centre, which is oh, just right. like yeah, next yeah. door. Yeah, I don't know if it was a, if it was a slowdown or if it was I don't know what it was. I think it was the same protest, and it just took him that long to get there. <laughs> uh, and he went once with prison for that. Oh right, so South London crimes. I say crimes. I'm <laughs> But MI5, uh, the files, when they finally came out on him, you know, after the, whatever the period it yeah, expired, yeah. they said he was uh, too drunk to be dangerous. <laughs> that was the working title for his book, I think. <laughs> we talked earlier about how... Sorry, Steve, there's an Irish link in it to the one I've got next, Simon oh. D. Do you know him? Yes, I do. I had Simon yeah, he D got well. uh, arrested for stealing a potato peeler. Well, <laughs> that was among his offences. I couldn't work out if it was... He went to, because he went to, um, I think he went to Pentonville at another point as well, but he either went to Brixton for stealing a potato because he went to Pentonville for not paying uh, council tax, or the equivalent of the time, the rates. Um, he went to Brixton either for stealing a potato peeler, which is ridiculous, or vandalising a toilet seat that had a picture of Petula Clark on it, because <laughs> he thought it was disrespectful to Petula Clark. Both of which are great reasons yeah, to go legit, to prison. Man. Had you ever heard of Simon D before? Never. No, I I, I knew of him because uh, my mum mentioned him before, just as this. Because he's, he's, he's infamous more than famous now for being uh, this man who's at the peak of his career. He was essentially like Parkinson or Frost. Yeah, he was that sort of level. In sort of swinging 60s London. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's working for the BBC and just thought he was so big that he could negotiate from position of power and the BBC offered him this negligible contract to basically to drive him out they didn't want to work with him anymore. he goes to ITV and his career just falls apart yeah we've seen it so many times before Des Lynham Des Lynham you could put a Des Lynham <laughs> did you see that? yeah Chief. they'll win apparently while he's in Brixton um, as he walks through the prison inmates would shout his jingle at him which was uh it's Simon D. <laughs> Would you imagine for prisoners, it would be like the best thing in it. It's mm. like a half term or something when Simon D comes to stay. Also, a remarkable moment at his trial 
The magistrate who convicts him, did you read this? I did. Yeah. The magistrate who convicts him is Bill Cotton, the man who gave him his first contract at the BBC. <laughs> After he sent down, another uh, one of the JPs is sitting on the panel with Bill Cotton, says, uh, he seems like a dreadful man. And Bill Cotton said, but for so many years he paid my wages. <laughs> <laughs> You talked earlier about how the prisons that we're talking about now, you know, are more deserving of a prison stay. But arguably, the most famous person to have spent time in Brixton Prison is a great example of someone that didn't need to go to prison. Mick Jagger. Jagger yeah. yeah. Mick Jagger, whose conviction and imprisonment was so ludicrous that William Rees Mogg of the Times writes an editorial uh, explaining that it's. You know, a, a disproportionate punishment for the crime of a bit of possession. When I was looking this up on the internet, I f- my first thought when I saw his picture and his name, I thought it was the guy who invented the synthesizer. <laughs> <laughs> Why is he getting involved? <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair enough. Jag- Jagger apparently wrote 2000 Light Years from Home and We Love You uh, in his solitary night in uh, Brooklyn oh, okay. Prison. Certainly, one of them has got. Um, it's 2000 Light Years From Home has got the sound of a jail door closing mm-hmm. you know on the track right right. Jagger's arrested and charged with possession of various drugs I think it is isn't it well there's only four methamphetamine tablets and Keith Richards was sent to Wormwood Scrubs and he had sort of a negligible amount of uh, marijuana I suppose and there was I mean there's some stories that came out about the police raid you know right. Marianne Faithful was involved it was all lies sensationalism yeah, yeah. wasn't there some uh Police chief at the time who was just going after headlines essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was on uh, Crossfire Hurricane. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. But oh, right. okay, it turns up I've seen it do, in other similar right. documentaries. Yeah, they do. They do mention it in that as well. Yeah. The headline for the William Rees Mogg editorial is wonderful. Such a uh, beautiful bit of phrasing. Got them moves like Jagger. <laughs> was that was his first go? Yeah. Like, Let's have another pass. Forty this. years ahead of my time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The headline is. Uh, who would break a butterfly upon a wheel? Yeah, I read that, man. It's from a poem, isn't it? Yeah. But it, but also, you look at, as I say, the history of imprisonment in South London, specifically in London generally, over the last 500 years, and you go, this is the one you're drawing the line on. Yeah. This is all <laughs> you're going, this is well out of order. But Mary Ward. Yeah. Why don't you talk about that from hundreds of years before? This is the summer I love, man. <laughs> June 67, Steve. You know, a couple... How long was it uh, Was it in the next year? Or a few months later? They were in Hyde Park releasing 100 Butterflies. You know, this is for Brian. <laughs> Not the only musician who spent time there. We mentioned in our second South London Playlist episode, one of our best episodes, I reckon. Probably be a link to it if you click on Bricks and Prison on the South London Hardcore map. The singer from The Misfits, Glenn Danzig, spent the night there, didn't he? But we covered that. He wrote the song uh, London Dungeon. Peckham rapper Giggs went yeah. there on firearm charges. I don't know if we mentioned on the, on no, the show. No, I've never heard had... of him before. Oh, um, he's quite... Um, is he? Yeah, he was. He fronted a campaign for House of Labels. You know, like that kind of uh, Madhouse Superstore type TK Maxx shop. No, I was going to say, I've never heard of him. This is why. No, but he's, uh, yeah, he's all right. I mean, it's a bit, you know, the lyrical content is a bit... Uh, Morally questionable. Someone I know, right, grew up round the corner from him, and I shouldn't say who it was, but they just do they the phrase they used to describe him even then was fucked out. <laughs> My favourite former inmate of Brixton Prison, Bertrand Gachot, a French Formula One racing driver, who in 1990 is racing with the newly formed Jordan team, has an altercation with a cabbie in London. And sprays him in the face with CS gas, <laughs> which is uh, a remarkable yeah. response. Serves two months in Brixton Prison. Um, so Jordan have no option but to give a Formula One debut to a young Michael Schumacher. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. A man staying in Brixton Prison gave Michael Schumacher his first start in Formula One. Do we have anything, Steve, on the 1991 IRA escape? No, I didn't go for uh, Irish escapes. Irish escapades. Are you not fascinated by prison escapes, though? Um, no, I'm not. I mean, you want to go to Alcatraz, don't you? So, Steve, I've just seen in my notes that 
that Brixton Prison was known as the Surrey House of Corrections and Wandsworth Prison was also known as that at some point. I think Horsemonger Lane was also known, was as, also that known as, well. as at one point. Yeah. I think basically it, as new prisons were built or became more prominent, the, the title switched. Who's the champ? Wandsworth Prison opens in 1851. It's seen as a bit of a landmark moment in prison construction that there's a new more caring feel to it it's built under what's known as the humane separate system so you have separate cells and corridors toilets are introduced for the prisoners which on is suite. well yeah essentially in the cells which is seen as uh, you know um, quite a, a important moment the toilets are soon removed to make space for more prisoners, so that didn't last too long. <laughs> we could probably stack another four over there if you just uh, get rid of that. So yeah, they have to uh, slop out until uh, the 20th century. And it's a bit of a shock to the system as well. We talked about how barbaric the conditions were in sort of earlier phase of prisons. And then you read that in 1951, Wandsworth is holding the national stock of the birch. And cat and nine tails <laughs> for use in corporal punishment. Yeah. So if you wasn't, if you were in some prison in Scotland and you wanted one, yeah, you phone up Wandsworth and go, can yeah. you just send us a couple of? Can you send send us two cat and nine tails because yeah. the last one broke on a man's back. <laughs> so if you send us two, we can definitely lash loads of people. In 1951, probably the most famous inmate, Derek Bentley. Could you say? He's one of, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, not famous as a person, but the the, the case became yeah. so sort of prominent, didn't it? I mean, Let him have it. Yeah, yeah. Again, uh, immortalised in film. I've just remembered... Yeah, I've just remembered where we talked... I knew we'd talked about this on a previous show. And I we just did, didn't we? Yeah. It was on the Lambeth Boys. But yeah, as course, you say, it was yeah. made into a film with Christopher Eccleston called... Uh, it was a film called Let Him Have Let It. Let Him Have It, yeah. And yeah. there's a, an Elvis Costello song right. with uh, called something similar... Yeah, we did talk about it on the, uh, the episode where we talked about We Are The Lambeth Boys, because they discuss it, don't yeah, they? Uh, yeah. you know. And they catch him, and they say he's mental. I was thinking, when you said the most famous one, I was thinking Ronnie Big Steve, the... Uh, yeah, again, I mean... From the Great Train Robbery. robbery. He's given a 30-year sentence, 19 months into it. He escapes from Wandsworth Prison, scaling the wall with a rope ladder, uh, getting into a removal van, went to Brussels by boat, then to Paris... They had plastic surgery and got some new papers and then uh, went to Brazil for 30 years. And then came back. Yeah, what, because he missed the... Was it really the brown sauce? Is that why he came back? Uh, he also had terminal cancer. <laughs> and you imagine National Health Service would be a better bet than... Uh, not when you sound cynical. Also, uh, I'd imagine after 30 years the money had run out as well. Can't keep robbing trains. Do you know how much they took, though? Well, the thing is, they, he got busted, so he couldn't have had much money from it, could he? Do you know what I mean? He must have had to get yeah. money from elsewhere. Yeah. But yeah, 2.6 million. Yeah, incredible. He's from South London, as is. is Buster Edwards, who was also involved. Yeah. Uh, later played by Phil Collins in the uh, film Buster. <laughs> you, were you not expecting to talk so much about Buster Edwards? I was expecting to ever mention Phil Collins on this podcast. <laughs> it was like an unwritten rule I felt we had at the start. But yeah, Buster Edwards ends up, you know, it is tangential, but it's still South London because he's from one, uh, Lambeth. He ends up selling flowers outside right, yeah. Waterloo Station. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't remember ever seeing him, but he died um, in, I think it was November 94. And I started going to school in Waterloo in September 94. Yeah. And when he died, I remember it being like, oh, that guy has flowers, but yeah. also was in the great train robbery. Yeah. No, I'm a bit older, so I do remember him having the flower stall. Well, you would remember the film coming out, wouldn't you? It was Absolutely, quite a big yeah, film, yeah. wasn't it? What, yeah. Was that around the early 90s? Yeah. Maybe even, yeah. yeah. We'll probably be doing Phil Collins on screen in a future <laughs> episode. I presume, Steve, like me, you're keen to avoid grisly, horrific that's, deaths. Yeah, that's why, oh, basically, the prisons I picked out have either been nicked for ridiculous things or had ridiculous things associated with their time in prison. I didn't really want to go for... No. The borough poisoner, yeah. the wigwam murderer, yeah. the acid bath murderer, the acid bath murderer. Don't need to know the details there, really. You, you've got the details there, pretty much. <laughs> uh, George Johnson Armstrong, the first British citizen to be executed under the Trees Act. 
Yeah, there was a few. Yeah, loads of trees and guys were sent. Yeah, away. yeah. Yeah, there was uh, interesting. You had uh, William Joyce, Lord Hawhaw, who was uh, essentially a collaborator with the Germans uh, during the Second World War, who's executed for treason, even though he's an Irish citizen. But he oh. <laughs> illegally got himself a British passport. Oh, right, uh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, uh, so basically through that act made himself... If he if he didn't have any of those things, he wouldn't have been uh, killed for treason. There's also another guy, uh, Avery, is it? Someone? John Amory. Amory, yeah, who was a prominent fascist who, uh, again, was uh, executed for treason after the war and had colluded with the Germans had tried to establish a force in Britain to fight against... His argument was he was anti-communist rather than pro-fascist, but saw Hitler as a useful way to fight communism. Um, but basically, yeah, aligned with Hitler, uh, joined the British Union of Fascists, and it's only when he's about to die that they find out he's got he's of Jewish descendants. And apparently... And aware of it. No, yeah, was aware of it and just basically tried to cover it up as much as possible. Yeah, it's just this horrible duality mm. of, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as I say, fascinating individuals, uh, people who are done for I mean, there's another guy who's uh, a sailor who falls in love with a German girl in a port, I think it's in Dar es Salaam, and at the start of the war he's in Lisbon. And a German agent says, oh, that girl that you, uh, I know where she lives, I can get a letter to her. Can you tell us where these ships are going? Uh, Offers him a thousand escudos as uh, an incentive, which the guy takes, signs a receipt with his own name for them. Takes a further 800 escudos for various other bits of information. Offers to get them to books, doesn't. Never actually gives them anything concrete or useful. He doesn't know anything. And he basically just wants to get to the goal that he fancies. Comes back to England. Is asked. Then I approached him. He was like, yeah, this German guy uh, gave me 1,800 escudos. I didn't tell him anything. Uh, is arrested and executed. Ooh. And is basically used as a cautionary tale in the papers. The staff room at Waterstones Piccadilly, right, it was one of the best staff rooms I've ever been in. I think they might have taken it away from them now and given it to some head office creeps. Yeah. It was like on the eighth floor and you just had this beautiful view of South London. It was great. It was a south-facing building, <laughs> lovely balcony, nice kind of fire escape on some stairs as well that you could kind of smoke on if you were so inclined. When I first started at Waterstones, the staff room was in the basement which, as we know, was susceptible to flooding, mm. particularly with raw sewage. Uh, Nick Walden described it as aromatic. <laughs> also, uh, they discovered some... Uh, they thought was enclosed asbestos, but they weren't entirely sure. Um, but they, they had that treated. I mean, you know, this is the thing. I asked them at the time, I was like, when you bought the building, didn't find asbestos in the survey? And I didn't get a survey done. Bought a building mm. from the 1930s and didn't think that asbestos might be an issue. Um, but while I was there, fair play to them. They moved us out of the basement and up to this wonderful staff room with a great view. And now, obviously, more recently, I put everyone back down in the basement to yeah. give that view to uh, some dreadful humans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Best retail staff room I've ever been in. I've yeah. been in some horrors, Steve, right? Yeah. At um, Waterstones Covent Garden, it's just the most horrible little underground room there's just like it's a room in it they give you like a cupboard you know when you have like a kind of kitchen cupboard and there's a drawer missing it's just (laughs) like a hole where there should be a drawer and like the cupboard doors are nailed shut right at Vans in uh, Carnaby Street they've got a kind of kitchen unit and they've got it's like a stock room so they've got all the shelves with all the trainers on it and then the final one is like the top two shelves of you know it goes up like the top shelf is like six foot or whatever, even higher maybe. Loads of trainers on there and then on the next one. And then there's an empty one where people put their bags and stuff. And then there was a one broken swivel chair and a fold-out chair with some lockers. Like genuinely about, say, two metres by three metres. Yeah. And there was a sign that a manager had printed out and put up that said, if you don't keep this area tidy, we'll take it away from you. <laughs> How, how are you going to mess up the area? It's just Who's so not folded sad, away this chair? Man. Who's oh, not folded I hated away? I working there, man. Right. The current tea room 
uh, Wandsworth Prison used to be the gall- where the gallows oh. were. <laughs> so maybe that's slightly worse. It's not really worth mentioning Charles Bronson, is it? No, I mean... Because, A, because he stayed in every prison yeah, in the country exactly, almost, yeah, yeah. and B, because he's just a lunatic, isn't he? He is, but the film, the Nicholas Winding Refn film with Tom Hardy is... Have you seen it? I didn't realise he directed it. The guy made Drive. Yeah. Oh, right. Absolutely yeah, brilliant. Good, yeah. If you like Drive, you'll love... I, I, I enjoy Brunson much more. Than, oh, uh, I enjoy Drive much more. Maybe there's no link to whether you like one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> Who else was there? Julian Assange. Yeah. Pete Dockett was there for a while. More known for being in Pentonville, though, isn't it? You know, Pentonville are off, Pentonville are off. Do you know that song? Of course <laughs> you don't. It's just a song <laughs> on the Baby Shambles record, the first one. Where... Oh, it's a Pete Dockett song, that's why I don't Well, know. it is, but it's just his, his flatmate doing this kind of uh, improvised reggae thing. Terrible. Yeah, I was going to say... I say, I say flatmate, I'm cellmate. <laughs> James O'Reilly. James O'Reilly. Oh, really? Who, who uh, assassinated Martin Luther King. What did he get done for him once with? Killing Martin Luther King. Do you know he got? He managed to get to Britain? Oh, and no, he was no. arrested in Britain for killing Martin Luther King. Okay. And uh, stayed in Wandsworth prison for a while and got sent back over there. But did you know also he escaped from prison in 1977 from somewhere in America? And he got put back in. I was going to say, he's not... Yeah, he's, yeah. he's not at large. <laughs> Oscar Wilde. And as we mentioned previously in our Thamesmead episode, Thamesmead on screen, A Clockwork Orange, not only was it filmed partly in Wandsworth prison, but it was also the novel apparently is... Yeah, it mentions it, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and Will Self wrote a short story called The Nonce Prize. Of course he did. <laughs> of course he did. Will, 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 Will Self, the literary equivalent of Pete Doherty, of course he did. From his uh, collection, Tough Tough Toys for Tough Tough Boys. You, you know, by all means, buy it through our Amazon link on the website. Or get a good book, it's up to you. Go to southlandhardcore.com, click the Amazon link for any Amazon purchases and we'll get a little bit of cash. Humphrey bought a printer. Yeah. And my mate Sam bought some uh, poetry books. He, he was quite upset he didn't get a shout-out on the show. But I fear he might have turned off by now. <laughs> Do you know about hulks? Hulks? Yeah. No. Around Woolwich, they'd have uh, disused warships. I'm not sure exactly what the era is, but, I mean, this is definitely the case. And they would put prisoners in there, like, even before they decided to send them anywhere. They would just, like, float in prisons. Oh, right. They'd just stick a load of people in these hulks, they called them, like, disused warships, um, docked at Woolwich. I mean, obviously, that leads us into Belmarsh Prison. Yeah. Which, uh, which is very much on the land. <laughs> <laughs> and has seen the land around it expand in recent times, hasn't it? You know, it's... Um become essentially a complex. You've got Belmarsh, which opened in 1991, at the heart of it. Um, but more recently, in 2010, uh, ISIS, which is a young offenders institution, has opened up. And Thamesmead, sorry, Thameside in 2012. And it's interesting, they seem to, to cover the full gamut of prisons. You've got a young offenders institution, Thameside, which is a Category B prison, and Belmarsh itself, which is a Category A prison for, obviously, high-risk offenders. Yeah, right, wrong ones, I yeah. think is the technical term. Well, it's, and it, it, again, uh, dominated in recent years by people on terror charges, essentially, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's been nicknamed the British Guantanamo Bay, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, there are people who damning. have been arrested for terror offences, including 9-11, who have since been cleared of all charges and are now awaiting compensation. Yeah, I mean, it's going in there for years on yeah. 9-11, yeah. nothing to do with it. The appeal in terms of dealing with high-profile and high-risk cases is the fact that, similar to the prisons we talked about earlier, it's directly attached to the court. So, in terms of transporting from the court to the prison, it's just a case of moving from one building to the next rather than having to employ vans and escorts and helicopters to follow them along. It's on the historical site of the Woolwich Arsenal itself. Uh, again, Charles Bronson stayed there. Course, yes. That's mm-hmm. got the lot in it. Um, my two favourite, it's joint favourites in terms of notable prisoners. Jeffrey Archer. Yeah. And <laughs> who else? You wait till I'm there. <laughs> and Jonathan Aiken. Not Abu Hamza. Nah. Because. Uh, <laughs> Hook for hands. <laughs> um, I might actually look into that. 
and a hook. <laughs> Jeffrey Archer and Jonathan Aitken. A lot in common. Oh, yeah, both Tories. Both Tories. Both served time in Belmarsh Prison and both convicted for perjury. It's almost like uh, they're scumbags that have no moral compass whatsoever, <laughs> isn't it? And yet, all they've got in common is the fact that they're uh, Tory MPs. Interesting. Have you read any of Geoffrey Archer's work? No. I mean, I'm thinking of a prison diary and a prisoner of birth. And I think there's... Uh, doesn't he have the temerity to call one of them a prisoner of conscience? I hope he does. Because mm-hmm. that would be... Apparently, him and Aitken are both uh, quite... Unapologetic? Yeah, obviously. Uh, but also, quite positive about their time in prison. They didn't... Well, he banged out two books, didn't he, yeah. Archer? yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm big. sure he was looked after. Do you know what I mean? He yeah. was paying for the lighter irons, wasn't he? <laughs> I wouldn't say I've really got a favourite prisoner, Steve, but I did end up on reading some fascinating stuff related to Barry George. Yeah, I mean, you know, Barry George was put in prison for killing Giordano, and then it turned out he didn't do it. Very, very strange, man. Yeah, he never. He always denied it. Then I think so. Yeah, he was. Um... An odd character, wasn't he? He'd spent a large part of his life before that pretending to be Freddie Mercury's cousin or something, wasn't oh, there? Right. Something there? I don't mm. know. Yeah. But it did make me think: Who did kill Gilles Dando then? Because no one was like once he was let off. I say let off. Once he was sort of found uh, not guilty. Yeah. Of that crime. But he, she was killed by the Yugoslavian intelligence service. Yeah. Was she? Yeah. Do you know about this? No. Why? <laughs> In retaliation for the NATO bombings of the radio television of Serbia headquarters on 23rd of April 1999, yeah? Yeah. Like, apparently this is a theory, like, everybody agrees with, that the Yugoslavian, uh, like, Secret Service, essentially, just carried out some retaliation attacks. And part of the reason is that she was on the cover of the Radio Times the week of the bombings. Right. And even though she's kind of a minor... Figure, do you know what I mean? They just kind of almost pick people at random by the sound. Well, sort of symbolic rather than tip. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, you'd think, well, why didn't they claim responsibility? But apparently, they've they carried out at least 150 assassinations from 1946 to 1991, the Yugoslav Secret Service, and never claimed responsibility for any of them. Right, like it wasn't really. It's not like say like the IRA. Or the ETA, I don't know what that is, Estimated Time of Arrival. What's the ETA? Uh, they're a uh, Basque separatist organisation. Oh, they did, those train bombings. Yeah. Yeah. The claiming responsibility is not really their scene. They try and make it look... Like a murder. Yeah. Or like a case of mistaken identity or whatever. Well, the thing is, if it's the Yugoslav Secret Service, the difference with the IRA and ETA would be they are an arm of the nation-state. So it would be an act of war. Yeah, okay, yeah. If you're killing... But what's this, just spite? Yeah, an act of spite. <laughs> we declare spite. But Bob Whiffenden said it, they definitely did it. Yeah, but everyone's saying Barry George definitely did it. <laughs> Who's your favourite South London prisoner? Tweet us at SLHC. Obviously Mick Jagger is the answer. No, Jagger's terrible. He's a Tory, isn't he? Oh, he was in the stones, Steve. Yeah. Doesn't... Oh, uh, tax exile as well. Don't ruin Mick Jagger. <laughs> Mick Jagger's ruining Mick Jagger for you. Don't blame me. 